Lord, you are holy, you are wonderful, you are worthy of our worship. Be glorified today in this gathering. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We are uh, taking a pause from our series that we've been doing uh, about, about Matthew, specifically the Beatitudes. Um, because remember the la where, where we paused was where um, why adultery is a bad thing. Uh, and Jesus, being the husband to his bride, the church, uh, should, should cause us to pause and question, have a question, what is the church? And that's what we're going to go through over the next couple weeks, depending on how long it or how well I answer next week's um, part two. It should only be three weeks, so um, really depends on how well I answer the question. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I, I want us to pause and be careful too, because just saying that Jesus is the husband to his church does not um, it do, it doesn't mean several things. And we'll, we'll, move, we'll work through some of the things it doesn't mean as we answer the question, what is the church in general? Um, when, we, when we answer the question, we kind of have to work our way through a whole Bible narrative. Um, and, and there really is a purpose to every section of Scripture. Scripture, in general, points to Jesus. Can we agree on that? Every bit of scripture is pointing to Jesus. So, so the whole of the Old Testament foreshadows in various ways the coming of Jesus through human sin and failure, foreshadowing his perfection, through legal requirements, foreshadowing his fulfillment of that law. We went through that a couple weeks ago. Through prophetic witness, uh, uh, looking to his actual coming, when he comes, what it looks like. Etc. Every bit of scripture in some capacity points to Jesus, even in the Old Testament. And then we come to the New Testament, and the Gospels tell us the life of Jesus, telling us of his kingship, like the theme in Matthew, his activity and his miraculous workings in Mark, his historicity in Luke. And that is a word I love, by the way, because nobody uses it. When would you ever use the word historicity in a sentence? Other than a theological article. Anyway, uh, so his historicity in Luke and, and his love in John. Every gospel tells us in thematic form what Jesus' life was like. Then you come to Acts, and Acts continues that story of Jesus through his apostles, seeing how Christ grows his kingdom in an incredibly hostile world. Then you come to the epistles, which is just a, a word that means letters. So uh, the letters, predominantly written through Paul, uh, but also Peter, John, James, Jude, and the unknown author of Hebrews. But the epistles specifically apply Jesus. They tell Jesus' people how then they should be living uh, through, through various means. We see what Jesus demands, what his life shows, um, and the deeper theological realities that intertwine those truths. Um, this is why the epistles are actually typically easier to preach, to be honest, because they apply themselves. You don't have to look for a sermon application or try and manufacture a sermon application because Paul especially tells you this is it. 
Therefore, this is what you ought to be doing. But each church had their own unique struggles, their own unique oppressions, their own stories that are really clear when you read the whole book, but an epistle, again, is just a letter, uh, so it doesn't take as long to read as like a novel would, but, but each one had their own unique situation. Uh, Galatia, for instance, and Colossae struggled with Judaizers, which were people twisting the faith into a more Jewish legal bent. Uh, Philippi struggled because they didn't know what happened to Paul. Paul comes, he plants the church, he goes off, he says, I hope to return, and then they don't hear from him. So they're trying to figure out what's going on, and then Paul writes the, the letter to the Philippians explaining what's going on. Ephesus uh, struggled with unity. Unity on a couple levels. They, they struggled with, with relational unity, family unity within the church body. Uh, they struggled between churches. They struggled with doctrinal unity predominantly. And so if uh, the letter to the Ephesians is really doctrine heavy. Then there's Corinth. And we'll get to Corinth. Corinth's a fun one. If you have a bulletin, you'll notice that next to the sermon notes... Where I normally put the why did we do that, I have a, uh, a what is the church part one, and I have a fill in the blank uh, with four spaces. The line on the bottom doesn't count. If you don't normally do sermon notes, and even if you do, I'm going to ask that you uh, fill out these fill in the blanks um, just, just to keep it fresh in your mind. And I'm, I'm planning on keeping them as we build on them in this section, which is why there's such a big blank in the bulletin. Back to the question, what is the church? That was the question, right? I actually left off there. Um, so commonly when people use the word church, they actually mean a building. It's, it's true when, when, uh, when you use the word church, most people will understand that you mean the building itself. Um, and and um, that's, that's not probably the best way. Uh, but to quote Charles Spurgeon, nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than his church. So is nothing more dear to God's heart than these four walls? Is nothing more dear to God's heart than how clean the carpets are, how organized the, uh, the, the fonts on the bulletin are? What, what, is, what is Spurgeon talking about? Well, the Bible uses a few words for the church. Um, one, one stands out, but a little English history. Uh, the English word church comes from the Greek kuriakon, which you can say, why on earth? That doesn't sound anything alike, but it actually comes from it. But the word kuriakon means belonging to the Lord. This is used only twice in the New Testament, and not once does it actually refer to the church, but it's the word we use. Um, it's, it's used in 1 Corinthians 1.11, which is the Lord's, again, belonging to the Lord, so the, the, the supper belonging to the Lord, the Lord's supper. It's used also in Revelation 1.10, the day belonging to the Lord, the Lord's day. Are either of those the church? No. No, they're not. They're a supper and a day. So where did our English word come from? Well, I actually had Google say these words to me earlier because they're in Dutch. It's presumed that our English word church comes from the Dutch word kirk. <laughs> and, and that Dutch word kirk 
or kirche would be a, would be another word for it if you're using it proper, um, means house of the Lord. Kirk came from Curiacon, <laughs> and then Curiacon going to Kirk becomes church in English. So when we refer to the church building, we're being proper if we're Dutch. Are any of us Dutch? I'm not. I'm Norwegian. You're part Dutch? All right. So, so when we're using the word church to refer to the house of the Lord, that's proper in Dutch, but that's not biblically what is meant. And we want to be whole Bible Christians. We want to be Christians that think in terms of what God has said in the Bible. Um, and so we kind of have to start rewriting our own mental definition. The word that we predominantly translate in the Bible to mean church is the Greek word ekklesia or ekklesia, which means gathering or assembly. More literally, an ekklesia is people called out. That's ek, the Greek or the, the, the Bible that, or Bible, the book we have in the Bible called Exodus is that same prefix. The exodus was the being called out of, e of Egypt. So when we, when, when we use the word church, the Bible uses the word gathering or assembly. Um, a new, uh, it was actually used if, if we have a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint uses the word ekklesia to refer to the congregating of Israel, which is where we get the theology that the church exists in the Old Testament and Israel is the church in the New Testament. Now in this age, the church, the congregation of Israel is absorbed into the New Testament church, which I would argue with. So, uh, but, but just know that that word ecclesia is used in ancient times to refer to Israel as well. Um, a New Testament, though, example of the Greek word ecclesia would be um, would be Matthew 16, 18, which says, oh, I'm behind on my slides. Sorry, moving on. Uh, the, the, uh, Matthew 16, 18, where, where Jesus says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, meaning himself, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's, that's the Greek word ecclesia. So when, when we think of church in that sense, what do we think of? We, we don't think of the four walls. Jesus didn't come with a hammer and nails and build the sanctuary. People did. People built it to worship Jesus. Or in Revelation, when Jesus speaks to the seven churches. I mean, I could use every example here, but an example would be Revelation 2.1, to the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus. So, again, ecclesia, not Coriacon, not Kirk, not church in, in terms of the house of the Lord, but the gathering. So this is the word we, we really should employ in our mental dictionaries. And you know what I mean by mental dictionary? It's like when somebody says the word cat, an image pops in your head, right? Uh, you, you remember, I mean, probably even a specific color of cat pops into your head, uh, whether it's black cat, orange cat, um, tuxedo cat, whatever it is. It comes into your mind. So we need to start rewriting our mental definition to be ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly, 
the people that are called out. So if we're thinking, thinking biblically, we're not referring to the church. And I even apply this as far as when I tell my kids I'm going here, right, on a day that's not Sunday, I say, I'm going to go to the church building because this is the building that belongs to the gathering, the assembly. If there ain't nobody else here, there is not a church. To use a good memory tool, if you want to remember this, the church is a people, not a steeple. I love that phrase. Never forgotten that, which I forget everything, so that's amazing. So, the first fill in the blank is people. The church is a people. Write that in your hearts and minds. Whether, when, when you're going to church, are you going to a location or are you going to the gathering? Are you coming into a building or are you just, or, or are you, you coming with people? Because this is not, if you, were all, if you were all here, this would not be First Baptist Church of Toledo. This would be a building which belongs to First Baptist Church of Toledo. This would be a property that belongs to First Baptist Church of Toledo. You are First Baptist Church of Toledo. You are the Christians gathered here. The church is a people, not a steeple. Rewrite that. Rewrite that and remember that. Moving on, we, we've established here that the church is a people, um, and I, I promise you that's going to be difficult to rethink. Just watch. How many days goes by before you say, I'm going to church? And you mean the building. <laughs> whether it's coming to mow the lawn, or whether it's, it's coming to, 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 to put addresses on a, <laughs> on a, on a um, post out there, or you're coming to... Um, pick up our Wi-Fi for a few minutes, whatever it is, just watch how long it takes you. You will slip. You will say, I'm going to church. But really, you're going to the church building. So try to stop referring to the building as, as the church. Try to rewrite that. But, uh, but you're going to make a mistake. It's going to happen. But catch it. Just, just try and catch it. Even if it's 20 minutes later when you're like, wow, I just said that totally mindlessly, didn't I? Just try so, what else is a church? The, uh, the, the passage we opened up with, uh, Acts 1. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind. You notice I'm really breaking from the pattern, because usually I make you open your Bibles before I even start, right? But, but this time I wanted to set up a dictionary, and I, don't, I, I, don't wanna, I didn't want to give you guys a Webster's and say, here, rewrite this. <laughs> so... Open up to Acts, Acts chapter 1. What happened in Acts chapter 1, specifically verses uh, 6 through 11, um, where Jesus abandons his people? Hold on a second. Is that what happened? Did Jesus abandon his people? Let's read. So, when they had come together, meaning the apostles, after Jesus' resurrection, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're thinking, they're thinking place. They're, 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 they're thinking, uh, hey, are you going to kick Rome out? That's what they're asking. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit 
has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And this is one of my favorite things, because you just imagine they're all standing there like this, staring up into the sky, and then all of a sudden, then all of a sudden, two men say, men of Galilee, hello, <laughs> where'd you come from? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking, looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what, what happened there? Essentially, what happened is this. Jesus ascends. And by his ascension, his going up into heaven, you would think he's abandoned his people. Jesus is gone. He's left, he's left us here to suffer instead of him. If you're misreading it, that's what, he's, that's what you catch on to. But what Jesus actually did was he ushered in a new age. He, he, he made a promise in the midst of it. Look at verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Jesus doesn't abandon his people. He actually gives them something better than his own presence. Oh, hold on. Better? What's better than Jesus? Don't we look forward to, as Christians, the time that Jesus comes back? Like a crack of thunder out of the sky, he comes back and he begins, he begins restoring all things with his own bodily presence, looking forward to the day when he does this final battle and seals all sin and evil and the wicked in, in, into hell. Aren't we looking forward to that? Isn't this better when Jesus returns? You might think that, but that's not what Jesus says. Where does Jesus say that? Well, he says it in John chapter 16. In, in, if Jesus had not ascended, then we would have just had God with us, Emmanuel. But now we have God in us, the Holy Spirit. Go ahead and, and flip back a couple pages to John chapter 16, if you wouldn't mind. And I am sorry, I didn't get the page in the Pew Bible, otherwise I would have told you to just grab that. But John chapter 16... Verses 5 through 15. Um, and and I, 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 I recommend you guys, as the church, reread this passage over and over and over again. So, starting uh, in, well, actually, it starts in my Bible in the middle of verse 4. Uh, essentially, essentially, Jesus is getting real with his disciples. So this is right near the end of his life, and he's, he's being a little more blunt than he had been. But he says this, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They're, they're sad that he's leaving. This is before his death. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Why? Because he hasn't died. He hasn't raised from the dead. Ain't nobody going to listen to him before that happens. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. The Holy Spirit is a true prophet in that way. And he will declare to you the things that are, that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. But don't catch that. Don't, don't miss that. When, he said, when Jesus says in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. That's another thing we might need to rewrite in our brains, isn't it? We, we keep looking so far forward to Jesus' coming that we forget that God is already here. He's, he's not God outside of me. He's God inside of me. Um, and, and that latter part, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit to declare truths, that has been taken some wrong ways. Uh, what Jesus is, is saying here is he's going to inspire the things to come. He does so through the epistles. He does so through revelation. The canon is closed. And, and when the Holy Spirit comes, he was meant to bring these things. Why? Because now we have the rest of the Bible to look on for Jesus' words. Not just the letters in red in the Gospels, but the rest of the letters to read for us. So Jesus ushered in a, a, a new era. He founded the church. And that's your second fill-in. So the church is a people founded. Jesus founded the church in, in Acts chapter 2, specifically. When he brings in the Holy Spirit, he ascends, his people stand there gazing up at the sky before two, two uh, angels say, what are you doing? And then they go off. They go off and they cower, actually. They hide in a room until the Holy Spirit comes, bringing in the church age, bringing in this, this brand new experience of having God inside of them, convicting them, and helping them, and aiding them, being their paraclete, their helper. Something that had never happened before consistently in all the history of the Bible. Incredible. Remember Matthew 16, 18? Can you think, you think back to that? What, it, what was said? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. How does he do that? He does it through the aid of the Holy Spirit. The gates of hell shall not prevail. No storm, no tempest, no flood, no persecution, no famine, no struggle, no sword, um, no political debate, no government, no nothing will ever be able to break what God, Jesus himself, has founded, the church. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why? Because Jesus is the founder 
the perfecter of this faith. He has control over the church. He's both the construction team and the landlord of his church. And I'm not talking building. I'm talking the people. What does that say of our little church? Friends, we are members of a local church here at First Baptist Church of Toledo. We are not, however, insignificant and little. We are members of the global universal church. The Roman Catholics have stolen that. Don't go down the Roman Catholic route. Uh, but what I mean by that is that we should be content with his foundation and purpose. And if we are, we'll remain. Contentment, however, does not mean complacency. The fact that Jesus founded his church has placed demands on our lives, hasn't it? Doesn't it? Isn't there a responsibility as a Christian to live a certain way? All and every portion of our lives have demands placed on them because of Jesus. So if, if, if Jesus is our foundation, right? If Jesus is our king, the one we're worshiping, he's the one that builds us through the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, just like when he founded the church, what's the most important thing the church should be doing? If, if, if indeed we've got the, the, the church is a people founded upon, what is it founded upon? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, which is actually, believe it or not, where I intended to start the sermon. Um, but it just would have been nonsense if I did that. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 3. Uh, remember when I said earlier that each church had their own particular problems, and remember I promised we'd get to Corinth. Um, Corinth had a lot of problems. Uh, the, there are, by the way, three letters to the Corinthians, but God in his providence has only preserved 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There's, there's a, 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 a Corinthians 1.5 somewhere in there that Paul wrote. Uh, the, basically, what was happening is the Corinthian church was writing to Paul, and they're saying, we got these problems, man. We got, we got a dude that's married, his, his stepmom. We've got people quarreling over the Lord's Supper. We've got the, these, these, these rich people who don't have to work coming in and drinking all the communion wine, and then we can't do communion. And then we got these people with these spiritual gifts that are just using them, and they're interrupting the service, and we don't really know what's going on. And, and, and you, Paul, what should you be? Well, how should we do this? How can we organize this? How can we structure our church so that it's... It's, 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 it's working right, or are we doing it right? Like, they're panicking. <laughs> and Corinth was a really crazy city. I mean, it had, it had uh, uh, probably one of the most active cult prostitute temples in, in all of the Roman Empire. Um, it, it had the most food sacrificed to idols. So basically what would happen is food would be given, it would be thrown on an altar, and then all the, the meat that was cut off, the vegetables that were set aside that weren't quite good enough for the altars, they'd be sold in the meat markets. So the people that used to sacrifice their food are now buying the meat market food, and they're like, what do we do? Is this bad? Am I sinning? Sounds like a new Christian, doesn't it? With everything, like, am I sinning? 
Am I sinning by walking with my left foot first instead of my right foot? How do you do this? How do you do this Christian thing? I hear there's a Christian walk. What does the Christian walk look like? Ah, oh, man, if only that was a real conversation. But, <laughs> but, but we get to 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul has spent 14 chapters correcting, rebuking, encouraging the Corinthians, uh, celebrating certain things, and then we get to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul boils it down. And he says this, starting in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the Thursday, er, Thursday, on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Catch that. Most of whom were still alive when Paul wrote this. People that Jesus appeared to. Though some have fallen asleep, they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Acts chapter 9, if you want to reread it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So what's the matter of first importance? What is the core of, of, of everything that Paul did in Corinth? It's the gospel. The gospel is the core, the center of every little aspect of church life. And that is, consequently, your final fill-in. The church is a people founded upon the gospel. What had the Corinthians forgotten? In all their ecclesiastical matters and all their organizations and all their bringing in of these people and them becoming prophets and speaking in tongues, which, by the way, was nothing like we, we, we hear of today. It just means languages. Anyway, the, 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 the point is that with all the craziness that was happening in Corinth, Paul spends 14 chapters. There's two of these letters. <laughs> 14 chapters correcting them. And then we come to 15, and he says, remember, remember the first thing. Remember the thing of first importance, the most important aspect of everything that you do, the gospel. He writes these things, too, in 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4. He said, he, he, basically, letter 1, really harsh. Letter 2, lot softer. Still harsh, lot softer. But Paul, Paul says this after, um, after writing this. He says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction 
and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That's why preachers preach, is to let you know their abundant love for you, my abundant love for you. And that love is founded upon the item of first importance. The center of everything that I do is the gospel. The center of everything that we do as a church is the gospel. Without the gospel, church is nothing. It's not truly founded. It's not, it's not a people. Without the gospel, it's, it's empty. It's dead. That matter of first importance is why on, uh, on the, the front of, of the bulletin, I, I, I say that we're a church learning to embrace the gospel in all of life. What does it mean to embrace the gospel in all of life? It means that we recognize that the gospel is the very center, the very core of every aspect of the Christian life. That there is a gospel response to everything. That there is a gospel thought, a gospel-centered thought of everything that we do as Christians. And we can take that too far. What's a gospel way of making toast? But, but we can also recognize that there is a gospel way of doing evangelism. I don't just mean you beat somebody over the head with, with the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, say Jesus, right? Instead of noogie noogie, say uncle, right? Say Jesus. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that we go out and we go with meekness and humility, recognizing that it's God who builds his church, and he's the one who saves. And therefore, my responsibility is just to sow the seed of the gospel to pray for people, to go when you're at the Ace Hardware down there and they're, they're taking some flack due to some dude creating a whole bunch of fake pages for, uh, for them. And so they're having people coming in saying, I heard lumber was half off today. No. <laughs> Imagine telling no to the customer and then he shows you the Facebook post that says it is half off. Uh, that's not us. That's fake. So when you go in there, you can sow the seed of the gospel. How do you sow the seed of the gospel? You say, hey man, I know things are really rough. Uh, I, 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 I bet you get a lot of angry customers in with these fake deals. I'm praying for you. I, I really hope that God uh, convicts this dude and that he repents. But we've all sinned and we all need to repent. That's why Jesus had to die. How can I be praying for you? How can I be helping you? How can I be sharing or caring with you in the midst of this? as your customer. He might say, buy a plunger or buy some lumber, not half off. Whatever he says, he, it's, it, it's meaningful and it sows the seed. You don't have to be the one that says like, hey, now here's the four spiritual laws. Uh, I want you to read this and I'm going to come back next Tuesday at three and uh, we're going to talk about this. Don't make it weird. <laughs> but, but instead, we can, we can actually show the gospel to people. We can show God's compassion, and we can proclaim God's compassion. What is God's compassion? The gospel, the coming of Jesus Christ, his death for our sin, the matter of first, first importance, that Jesus died for our sins. How does that change things? In reality, just, just 
we gotta, we gotta rewire our brains, right? The church is not a building, it's a people. Church is the people, not the steeple. The church is not a building, it's a people. And the church is a people then, not who we build. We don't build the congregation. God has founded the church, and he builds it. Primarily, the church is not founded to be a social club, or a hospital, or a food pantry, or any other primary purpose, but instead, it was founded upon the good news of our reconciliation to God the Father through Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and continued rulership. God has not slipped off the throne. He hasn't fallen asleep with a Pepsi in his hand and accidentally spilled it. That's not what happened. So we have to rewire our brains. We have to think about this Christian life differently. If the gospel is of first importance, if this reality is of first importance to our lives, then we should live differently. We should serve differently. The gospel is not just important at the point of salvation, but through everything in our lives. And, I, I mean, we get distracted by, by spiritual things and worldly things, just like the Corinthians did. That's why we have this section of Scripture. That's why we have the epistles, to correct us, to remind us what is the matter of first importance. So believe these things, friends. Believe that we are His people, founded by His hands, built only on His gospel. This simple sentence of the church being a people founded upon the gospel is fundamental to every aspect of the Christian walk. And it changes the way we, 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 we want to serve. It's not just, oh, I got to go to church today. It's, oh, I get to go celebrate the gospel with other Christians get to celebrate what Jesus did. Even on those days where you sit in a pew and you are no greater than that blanket on the back of the pew, you're still here to worship. Worship the God of the gospel. So what must you do? What is the application of this message? What should you glean? What a great word, glean. It's this. Remember what a church is so we can live as best glorifies our God together. May that be our aim and our focus. May we be a people who recognize the gospel is of first importance. It's to be at the center of our lives and our life as a church. May we, friends, live the gospel in all of life. Oh, how differently we would live if we remember that. It's not a pharisaical legalism. It's not, it's not a letter of the law sort of a thing. It's a gospel life. God's mercy on display. My gratitude in response. Let's pray. God, in answering the question, what is a church... It's difficult 
for me to think differently primarily because I've spent so many years thinking a particular way or talking a particular way and I'm sure that everybody here is similar they've they've used words they've used words and it's it, that's the mental image that they've used it's like the word foyer or foyer right we know we know what a what a foyer is but we don't really know what a foyer is because we don't speak latin but I pray lord I think it's latin but I pray lord that we would we would be people that get centered on the gospel, that live your gospel in all of our lives. I pray that you would bring us joy in repentance. I pray that you would bring us repentance of mind, that we would actually change our mind and live differently because of it. But it's not going to be us that change it. It's going to be you. It's going to be your work. May we rejoice in the fact that your church, your bride, it's a people founded upon your gospel. Be glorified in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. May this be our story and our song together united under the truth that we can praise and adore our Savior all the day long, every day, for his gracious and merciful work on the cross and in the redemption of our souls. Go in peace, saints.